Welcome to the Let Christy Take It podcast. Let Christy Take It would like to thank our sponsors, Irish Woodcraft. Check them out on Instagram and irishwoodcraft.ie for all your guaranteed Irish bespoke furniture needs. On this week's episode, Derek and Kieran are joined by broadcaster, journalist and author Terry Christian. A stalwart of the Manchester scene, Terry has championed music from his beloved city throughout his career. Terry first appeared on national TV in the show Devil's Advocate, which would be a catalyst for a career in media, hosting radio shows for the BBC and Manchester's Key FM. In TV, Terry would become the host of Channel 4's iconic early 90s show, The Word. Here, many groups would be playing live for the first time on British TV, including Oasis, Nirvana, Snoop Dogg, Public Enemy and Rage Against the Machine. Terry remained its only continuous presenter until it finished its run in 1995. We discussed his new stand-up show, The Word Is, Terry Christian, and just what makes a good Dublin coddle. Let Christy Taker are delighted to bring you Terry Christian. Spread the word. Terry, welcome to Let Christy Take a Podcast. It's great to have you on. Yeah, no, fantastic. Good Thanks to do it. <laughs> Listen, uh, you're born in Manchester, in the Brookbar area. What are your memories of growing up in Manchester? I, I mean, it was quite a good area. I mean, you know, obviously, you know, you think everyone's as poor as you, don't you, back in the day? You know, we had a outside toilet, uh, kind of a crumbling house, good neighbourhood. You know, it was a, a lot of Irish, a lot of uh, Jamaicans in the area. Uh, a bit rough and ready, but yeah, I mean, it was good fun. The, the only trouble was, uh, I remember when when we they were pulling all those houses down. You know, they demolished our houses because they were like, you know, privately rented off our private landlords. And um, the trouble is, because we had such a big family, we had to hold out for at least a three bedroom council house. So yeah. we were like the last family on the street, you know, to be moved. And uh, every mouse. Every rodent from every other house comes to yours because you're, you're all that's left, you know. And we, we had a cat at the time, and she was a top-notch killer. But by the time we moved to that council house, that cat had the thousand-yard stare of a Vietnam veteran who'd seen too much action, you know. But, yeah, I mean, it was, I mean, it, it was funny. Um, I mean, a, a girl I went out with for about three months uh, when I was 15, she's just sent me... Um, something from a cousin of hers in Carlo of me uh, speaking to Ray Darcy on his phone this afternoon. You know, yeah. it's, it's still that community in a weird way. You know, it's, it's great. Great going to funerals, which is a terrible thing to say, you know. But we do organise events so that all that old Trafford mob, you know, still get together. The Brooks Bar end, though, was like, we were seen as a rough end. Um, and obviously, because we bored a Moss Side, Wally Range, and you, but there's just so much music came from within a half a half a mile of there. You know, I mean, I was a five minute walk away from MC Tunes. You know, Nicky Lockett, Denise Johnson out of a uh, you know Primal Scream and Fifth of Heaven in a certain ratio. She lived five minute minutes down the road. Martin Mer- Merchant out of Audio Weber. They signed some other records, didn't the U2's label? He was five minutes down the road. Salts out the Jazz Defectors. He was there. Morrissey, quarter of a mile away. 
John Marr, who I went to school with, you know, primary school, he was, you know, he was just around the corner, Milner Street in Old Trafford, you know, John Marr out of Buzzcocks. Yeah. And then Ian Curtis, his grandparents lived on Stamford Street, just two streets away. And that's yeah. where he always stayed. Because obviously, if you're going out in Manchester City Centre, you don't want to be living in Macclesfield, yeah. So that's where he used to stay all the time. Well, you so know what they say, Terry, if you, if you want to get out of a place like uh, an area like that, and there's plenty of them in Dublin, you're either a fighter or a singer or a musician. Yeah, well, in a weird way, now it's all yuppifying, you know, because yeah. it's in a city. So you're near it. And, and to, be, to be fair, even those rough areas, in that way, I would much rather have grown up in Old Trafford, Moss Side, Hume, than out in the boondocks, you know what I mean? That's somewhere like Little Holton or some Oldersville area like Withinshaw, you know, because just the idea that you can walk into town in the Manchester City Centre in like 20 minutes, you yeah. know what I mean? It, is, it makes you feel like you're on top of everything anyway, like the city belongs to you. So there is that vibe. Brilliant. And you said your parents are Irish. More importantly, they're from Dublin. What part? So my dad was from uh, Augustine Street in the Liberties, number two, in fact, uh, you know, in the old tenements. Um, what is it? So, but his dad died when he was six or seven. Um, so, you know, it was one of those where there was him, his three brothers and his sister. I'm sorry, his two brothers and his sister. And then his, his mum all lived in the one room with, with two beds and just turf under the beds for fire. And he used to have to carry like, it used to be a pump in the yard. And he used to carry buckets of water about five flights of stairs every day. You know, this is all, you know, that what he used, he used to give us that, that all the time. But I used to carry, yeah, okay, stick the tap on, fill the kettle. All right, Dad. <laughs> Luxury. Yeah. My mum was just off uh, Corporation Street. So, mm. I mean, that was, that was quite, quite weird because her cousin, June Cullen, Cullen, who was like one of her best mates, but stayed in Dublin. Uh, she actually lived in Henrietta Place, yeah. not Henrietta Street, Henrietta Place, which you think must have been attached to it or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Up around the I've, there. Actually, I've actually got a kind of a photo and that's and her address is written on the back. Brilliant. Uh, and Terry, I, I've, I've watched you doing your videos on YouTube and I've seen one where you've done a, I think it was a Paddy's Day broadcast about the history books. And I have to say, your knowledge of Irish history is quite impressive. Yeah, but have you checked it? Some of it might be wrong. I mean, that, that was just a tryout at a mate of mine's house, you know, in his posh kitchen <laughs> with his son. But, you know, it wasn't mic'd up properly. But I just thought, let's try this. Let's see. Yeah. Let's see if I can keep it up. <laughs> yeah, it was well, more the, of an experiment than anything. The books that you recommended are really good. And some of them are like collector's items. Like, Where did you pick them up? Just over the years. I've always been a history buff anyway, you know. Uh, and obviously, you know, Irish history is quite... I suppose it's interesting because it's not mainstream, is it? You know, we're, ne we're never going to study it, yeah. you know, and, and it's strange that, you know, you, you don't look at anything beyond really, you know, English history. And even that, you know, you do about the Roman invasion and then it goes, goes on and the Norman conquest, but it's a bit boring, really. You know, it, after a while, you tend to just keep doing the same bits all the time, whereas Irish history, I suppose you go, oh, right. You know, they had a story, they had a, a unique history before they had anything to do with England. You know, it's like, you yeah. know, I, I, find it, I find it fascinating. And a lot of the books that you get hold of, you know, you, you find a subject, you go, I'd like to know a bit more about that. I've always liked the Dark Ages and that kind of stuff anyway, you know, that era. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, may, and in many ways, the pre-Christian era. Are there um, kids now now pre-internet era? <laughs> yeah, bloody <laughs> hell. Yeah. Um, 
we hear like Morrissey, all his Irish heritage and, you know, his family around Crumlin and Dublin. Did your Irish heritage have an effect on your growing up or any impact on your growing up? Um, not in that way, you know, because my mum uh, moved over to Manchester when she was four and she was the seventh of eight kids. And although her mum, <laughs> I mean, this is like the story, I've told this story before, her mum, uh, I mean, my mum was the seventh of eight kids, but moved over to Manchester when she was four. And her youngest brother, my uncle Bill, was actually born in Manchester and referred to by her mum ever after as the English bastard. That's a bit twisted, isn't it? You know, anything he did wrong, it was because he was born in Manchester. And um, and see you, you fucking <laughs> yeah. Imagine she was she was a horrible piece of work, really. <laughs> I mean, they say that to me, mum. You know, because she died in nineteen sixty five, but she'd gone a bit senile. So I I don't remember hanging around with her. Um, Talking to older cousins, they used to go around to her house and she always had a big pan of coddle on the fire, Lovely. you know, which is evil, really, because that stuff, oh, God. Ah, Terry, now come ah, on. get up, get oh, up. Oh, we have to end it. this interview right oh, here now, Terry. On, yeah, but, yeah, but everyone's coddle was different. <laughs> my mum's coddle was disgusting. I mean, my cousin Maureen said, oh, I still make coddle. My, my kids and grandkids love it. I'm going, God, there was only our Tony liked it and because he, he was old enough to have gone round there for it. But my mum used to make it to the same recipe, pink sausages. It's basically a boiled breakfast, wasn't it? Delicious. Listen, and there's nothing more hearty or, or comforting in a, a a cold winter's evening than a massive bowl of... It's horrible. Well, look, the way my mum made it, had onions in. Yeah. Tomatoes. Oh, not tomatoes, no. Geez, no, that's, not tomatoes, tomatoes, no. Tomatoes. that's that too Mediterranean. Flavor. Yeah, no, tomatoes. <laughs> so onion, tomatoes, potatoes, sausage and bacon. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah, tomato yeah. now. That's and was it was it was it a a, a a blonde coddle or was it dark? Was it we had the I like a dark coddle. That's a the dark coddle. No, no, it was blonde. It was no, that's, that's what it's like. Pink yeah. sausage. Yeah, yeah. No, oh, it's disgusting stuff. I totally liked it. We all hated it. Terry, we take it. What the Jamaican kids sit on the street? You know, they had a bit of jerk chicken. <laughs> they had rice and peas and you know curry goat. Oh. You know, we used to get bits of what they had to eat. That's that's why I like stuff with flavour now. God, you could never reciprocate and say, here, have a potato. You know, have a boiled spot. Have a bit of coddle. <laughs> a pink sausage. In 1981, Granada ran a lively programme called Devil's Advocate with an audience of unemployed young Mancunians. I've got an HND in applied biology now from Manchester Polytechnic. And I can't get a job because there's no demand for biologists, and that's what I want to No idea what happened to this guy, but who's that just below him on the left? It's Johnny Marr making his TV debut and facing some tough questions. Why do you, John, think you should have any dough money at all? Why should I, as a taxpayer, pay to keep you? Because it, when, I, when I eventually found the job, I pay tax to pay for someone else as well. Terry, can you tell us about The Devil's Advocate, um, which led to you getting your first radio gig in BBC Derby in the 80s? Yeah, well, that, that was just weird. Uh, so I was, I'd, I'd finished that polytechnic. There was high unemployment, you know, 1981. And then you had the riots in the summer of 81. And uh, after the riots, the government had the Scarman report came out. And the Scarman report blamed the riots on high youth unemployment. And one of the cities most affected was Manchester because it had gone from a place of quite decent employment to almost no no jobs for young people because of, you know, factious policies, you know. So she closed down a lot of the manufacturing, the printing, textiles, you know, she lifted all the tariffs on textiles. So we got flooded with cheap textiles from India and Morocco and places like that. So there was no need for us to make it anymore. 
And um, all those places shut down because Manchester was a major place for like textiles. So suddenly there were no jobs and I was on the dole and uh, they made this this program about kids on the dole in Manchester based on the findings of the Scarman report. And it was the World in Action team, you know, made quite serious documentaries and they made it. And it was a series of eight shows that went out on a Sunday night at 20 to 7. And uh, it, weirdly enough, I, I actually got got a place on it got asked on it because I kept staying in bed till two o'clock in the afternoon being on the dole. And my mum worked as a school dinner lady and she'd come home from doing the school dinners at two and I'd still be in bed or just getting up. Imagine that could have had something to do with smoking marijuana. Who knows? But Mrs. Flanagan, who worked with her, one of the other women, her oldest lad was a guy, Kev, Kev Flanagan, and he ran the Young Christian Workers at St. Anthony's in Trafford Park. And he'd been asked to supply a load of kind of unemployed kids. But he, I suppose he wanted to throw a few ringers in. And so I was someone a bit, you know, older and more sophisticated. And uh, so I got asked along, went along, you know, to have a meeting. They tick a box. What do you think of this? What do you think of that? And then I was in it. So I was in with a load of uh, kids. And a lot of them weren't that bright. I was in a sort of arguing. I was quite political. I've been in the Socialist Workers' Party, the Workers' Revolutionary Party, the Labour Militants, anything to cause a bit of trouble, I joined them all. Left for the same reason with them all. I, I think I owed, owed the Socialist Worker about 30 quid, you know, for the papers that he used to sell. I think the Workers' Revolutionary Party about the same and Labour Militant a similar amount. That's probably why the revolution never happened because I, I owned all these left-wing organisations about 90 quid. But then again, I thought that was socialism in action at the time as a student. I thought I needed the money more than they did. So basically, when I went on this show and they were saying, you know, what do you think of this? What do you, I, I'd always have these clever little lines, you know, I'd say, well, you know, the, uh, you know, the Church of England are just a Tory party at prayer, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, talking about, you know, just the working class position. You know, the worst one, what really got me daddy said, I said, my dad's worked hard all his life and he's got nothing. And he was like, don't, 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 don't be saying that, you know, you've got nothing, you know, because all the blokes would be ribbing him right, when he went to work. Um, I mean, he, but my dad was quite funny because he, he, he kind of lived to the clock and he used to always go to the pub every Sunday lunchtime with his best mate, a guy called Tommy Cody. He was a footballer, John Sheridan's granddad. You know, John Sheridan's, mm. John Sheridan's mum's dad. And, you know, so they always got the Platford, which is a Dubliners pub in Old Trafford on Stretford Road. Morris's dad used to go there. So the Dubliners pubs were the Platford, the Three Legs of Man, the Northumberland Sports, and then I can't remember what the other one was. Well, that's where all the Dubliners would gather, you know. Other, other people would go to who weren't Dubliners, but that, those are the Dubliners places. And uh, my dad would always go there. And he thought there's something wrong with you if you didn't go out all the time. Only alcoholics drunk in the house, but he went out every night, especially when he retired. Uh, so, you know, it, it was quite funny with Dad. I remember when uh, our Mary had to make him his packed lunch, you know, because my mum, you know, it, it was, it was ill quite a lot. And uh, our Mary hated having to do it, you know, she said, just because I'm a girl, and she cut his sandwiches into little triangles. So obviously he's working as a labourer, isn't he? You know, he's, he's he had massive hands with that. I'm more delicate like him. And he gets to work, gets his sandwiches out, and he's got little triangles. And he said, I know all the fellas were there saying, What did you do, Dan? Did you raid the buffy? <laughs> <laughs> Quite funny. Now, 
From the firm which dared to put the fun-loving Borges on your screens comes a new 260-part series based on the life and hard times of a young man who's been variously described as Big Mouth, Radio Derby's Cheeky Chappie, Mighty Midget, and by those who love him most, that new bloke with a funny voice. You've read about him in the papers, seen him fight it out on the telly. A frank, fearless, cuddly bundle of nerves who's wanted throughout the length and breadth of Great Britain particularly by the Manchester police, but granted political asylum here in your very own barbed wireless. Mr. Terence Christian. Terry, you were a key player in, in the Manchester music scene, publicising bands that would later become legendary through your radio show and newspaper articles. You know, Oasis, The Mondays, The Charlatans, The Stone Roses. Did you realise at the time that you were on the cusp of a cultural shift? Well, I mean, for, for me, because of where I came from, we actually knew, even though you would have thought there'd be more footballers and music people, that, you know, I mean, I knew, you know, someone like Martin Merchant, you know, Sugar Merchant, when he, he was a massive reggae star amongst that kind of crowd of human moss side. He's the only guy who sang with the Saxon sound system, you know, out of London and out of the Saxon sound system came Papa Levi, Maxi Priest, you know, Tipper Irie, Smiley Culture, all these people. And he's the only non-Londoner who was with them. So we all knew about him. We knew about all sorts of stuff. And when you're kind of from that working class background and you get a bit of a break, it's maybe it's that weird Catholic thing where it's put something back. And that was the vibe you got in Manchester. You know, Tony Wilson put something back. You know, you take you if you're taking from somewhere put back into it and it, it makes it makes what you do more exciting because you become about something so when i did the word i mean i managed to get i think 16 different bands from manchester on several of them like james the charlatans you know happy mondays on on you know several times um well i mean i didn't get them on because we're from manchester i got them on because we were good and often bands from the north would miss out because everyone who made TV shows, you know, Tarquin, Quentin, Tristram, Sebastian, Rupert, are all from down south. And they're all from, so all they're doing is they're putting their own mates on all the time, good or bad, and then trying to tell you what's cool. And you're going, mate, you, you know, there's nothing cool about you. You know, um, so, so it, was, it was just that, it was that idea of giving someone a break, I suppose, you know, because we, you know, we all, we all like that, that, that leg up. And I mean, I got a leg up from being on national TV because I stayed in bed till two o'clock every day. So I hope kids are taking note of this because I stayed in bed till two o'clock every day, being unemployed and smoking dope. I ended up with my own radio and TV show. <laughs> and that's, ladies and gentlemen, is how you make it. You see, you can do it too. <laughs> you can do it. It's <laughs> not just me. And, you know, because I got spotted on Devil's Advocate, then got off my own show work for BBC Radio Derby. And that show, Barbed Wireless, I was trained by some of the best people, became a kind of access show. And um, so I had a guy, Devin Daly, who ended up producing Trevor Nelson, Sean Radio 1. And he, he had a sound system that specialised just in jazz, funk, American imports. And then, of course, because he was on that imports, you know, American jazz, funk scene, that's where stuff like House was still first played. Anything new coming out of America, any kind of black music would be played on that scene first. You know, you know, and that's where, you know, it was first heard. It was a massive scene, the jazz funk called Air scene. And then, of course, I had a, a reggae sound system, the culture sound system. 
Wesley Wings Levi and others, they come in and they do a reggae slot for me 20 minutes every week. So I'm learning off them. I turn my own show into my own private university, you know, put their voices on air because I didn't want to be that fraud. I didn't want to be going on pretending I knew when obviously by osmosis, you get to know it. You know, so I had a Dave Everson, who was uh, one of the, the main oldies DJ at Wing Casino. He did a 20-minute uh, slot on his show. I had another guy who was into all this sort of weird stuff like Eugene Chadbourne and the legendary Pink Dots and all that. He'd do a 20-minute slot every week. So I, I didn't have to pick that many records, really. Uh, then we'd interview bands. We'd do other stuff. And that show then won two National Sony Awards. And then we used to play demo tapes and bands. And then I just took that model in Manchester in 88-89 to the second biggest commercial station in the country. So suddenly there was loads of, loads of this great stuff. I mean, I'd already played like the Stone Roses, Inspiral Carpets, MC Busby, and people like that on my show on Radio Derby and obviously the Smiths and people. But when I got there with that power of being on six till nine every night in Manchester, I was playing like three Stone Roses tracks a night, all sorts. Do you remember the first time you heard the phrase Manchester? Yeah, I didn't like it um, because what I felt was what was great about Manchester at that time, 88 and 89, was it was a very diverse scene. But Tony Wilson, God rest his soul, just wanted to make factory records and the Hacienda the centre of it all, which it wasn't. You know, if, in fact, <laughs> you know, I mean, they talk about Hacienda, is it? it wasn't even the first club in Manchester to play house. Never mind the first club. No, house music came out of the jazz funk called Deocene. So it was played at those places. And then uh, my mate, Johnny J, who uh, did the Rock the House Nights. Uh, so he's a big music producer, Johnny. And Elliot Rashman, who managed Simply Red, said, Johnny J is, is as important to the history of Manchester music as Tony Wilson. Because the stuff that Johnny J bought through on his nights came 808 State, a guy called Gerald, Chapter in the Verse, MC Busby, you know, the Morrissey of rap, genius. Just didn't want to be a star. He got the biggest record deal of anyone in that Manchester era, getting signed to a Polydor for a great album called Words Escape Me. You know, um, Chad Jackson, Hear the Drummer Get Wicked, came out of that. Johnny J then, of course, he went on to produce the first hip-hop record in Manchester, Prince Cool, the MC Busby early stuff. Uh, Urban Cookie Collective, Key the Secret, um, all the all the Rosala stuff, Gabrielle Dreams, all the dance mixes that made that a number one in America. Um, and then obviously his big money earner that he hates anyone talking about was Cotton Eye Joe by Rednecks. You know, Cheetah Mill lad. That's what he's saying to me, Johnny. He's say, Terry, right? I'm a black guy from Cheetah Mill. I'm not interested in some middle-class white kid from Charlton twanging a guitar is going to sell 10,000 records. I want to sell 10 million, 100 million records. <laughs> and that's what he did. He actually produced the Space Monkeys and uh, their biggest record 
Sugarcane, which kind of went, you know, top 40 rotation in MTV. He produced that, and then they didn't use him for the second album. And the second album never came out, you know, which is quite naive, really. Um, so, he's, I mean, he's still making music under a project called Be The Lick, and then he's just done so much great stuff, Johnny. But then, so, obviously, I knew all about the black music side, and all that Manchester thing, what to do is, oh, it's all about white guys who wear big flares and go to the Hacienda, and you just thought, well, that's crap. Yeah. And, it, and it was also... The, the big drivers of, of what, what became that scene in Manchester were the Stone Roses. Yeah. But, and so much money being ploughed into the Happy Mondays that Tony Wilson was desperate for the Mondays to be at the front forefront. And so in a weird way, it was like the Mondays grabbing onto the coattails of the Stone Roses. Because an interesting thing at the time was like the Happy Mondays didn't start making properly good records, did they, until 89? You know, and, they, and they, they were the ones bringing in Paul Oakenfold and people like that, you know, and remixes and Vince Clark, you know, from, uh, you know, Depeche Mode and Erasure and Yazoo and that, you know, to do all these mixes. Whereas, like, the Roses are just plow, chucking the stuff out there, you know what I mean? John yeah. Lackey, get it out, whack it out. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, so the, Mon the Mondays became the band that they kept saying that they were going to be, you know, and all this nonsense about indie dance crossover i mean what what the shit does that mean i mean i love i love buzzcocks growing up in the clash but i still like earth wind and fire you yeah, know? yeah and james yeah. brown and the yeah. ohio players you know yeah. it's, it's ridiculous there's only two genres of music good and bad <laughs> live television hey, that's what it's all about Listen, you might as well laugh now because I don't get any funnier. Yes, this is the word, the music and entertainment show created to bridge the gap between infancy and adultery. We've got a nice set, lights, music, sophisticated showbiz personalities. Derek mentioned that you wrote a newspaper article and that was called The Ward. Can you tell us yeah, how yeah. you went from The Ward on print to The Ward on TV? Well, I mean, the, news, the newspaper, it was, a, it was a page every week on a Friday in the Manchester Evening News covering up-and-coming Manchester bands or giving you news about, you know, the Stone Roses in L.A. or the Happy Mondays involved in a big riot in Paris, you know, whatever story I heard. And then I'd review a few demo tapes on it. And when I was doing this show, it had the working title of Club X2. I'd been auditioned, I'd gone to a meeting to talk about what it should be. They couldn't find a name for it. And because it was on on a Friday yeah, at six o'clock, the same night as my page came out in the evening news, I said, what about calling it The Word? Now, I thought The Word was a really naff name. Do you know what I mean? And I'd inherited it from Sarah Champion, who'd written, written it before me. And then Mick Middles, the old Melody Maker journalist, he'd written it before her. He'd written it from the start. And, um, and they said, oh, yes. Yes, yeah, so that's good. So I think somebody else suggested that. You know how Tarquin, Tristram and Quentin and Sebastian do? You know, they'll never give you the... They'll say, oh, that's a good idea. You know, <laughs> um, but I didn't mind. I thought, great, because I, I might then, once it started being broadcast, get an extra 30 quid a week for me column off Mike Hunger, the Scouse editor of the Manchester Evening News, which he did. He gave me an extra £30 a week, exactly, and he drafted someone in to uh, compile the the kind of what's on guide, which was, which I used to hate doing. I used to actually uh, have this girl photocopy the City Life one and send it to me, you know what I mean? And the guy sussed it out from City Life. This woman I knew, she worked there, and she's like, copy, copy is out and give it me, so I could just copy it down. 
<laughs> and then he started putting, you know, pretend gigs in that didn't exist and went, you're copying off me. And I said, oh, you know, well, no. So this is pre-Rebecca Vardy and Colleen. Yes. But yeah, so, but anyway, so, you know, I, I did that. And then, then the show, you know, just became, became what it was. Um, I mean, I never got the control that I wanted, you know, which was interesting. Um, you know, there's a lot of politics, you know, that went, yeah. went on around it. But, it, yeah, it was yeah. quite interesting. I'll tell you, it was the, I remember, like, me and Derek was talking about this. We'd go out and we always made sure it was recorded and you come back and you watched it religiously after a few points. With your mates. Uh, yeah, gang you around the man out in bed and you'd be all laughing at the telly. <laughs> but I have to ask you, the ward is remembered for its live music performances, uh, Act Nirvana, Oasis. I think I'm right in thinking you gave them their debut in 94. Yeah, Mary, yeah, yeah. Mary J. Blige. I mean, Oasis yeah. had to argue the toss for like six to eight eight weeks to get them on. Yeah. And and we got them on three weeks before Super Sonic was nearly was really out because we would normally get a band on the Friday and the record would be out on the Saturday or the Monday. Well, what's your favourite performance? Oh, I mean, it's so hard. I mean, there's so many great ones. I mean... I, the weird thing is that we, I think we did live music better than anybody. But the, the guys who worked there, you know, the, the, the cameramen and the sound guys, they took a great pride in it. So I think nearly every band that came on the word sounded fantastic. So, I, I mean, it's, it's hard. I do remember in rehearsals when you'd watch them and you'd go, wow, that's going to be something tonight. So I remember feeling that about Nirvana. I remember the Lars. And they were absolutely brilliant in the rehearsal. Then went and smoked a load of weed before they did it and sounded a bit croaky later on. <laughs> and um, but I mean, I just thought all the bands were great. I mean, standout moments. I mean, even you know, get, getting you know, someone like Mary J. Blige singing live was yeah. like, wow, you know, um, you know, having public enemy on, you know, and this this was a thing where you know the vibe I wanted to create was a bit like Tony Wilson's So It Goes, you know, for the music. So it was like it would be all sorts. You know, I remember seeing Steel Pulse on So It Goes and Elvis Costello and Ian Jury, you know, and Iggy Pop doing The Passenger live from the Apollo in Manchester with the big horse's tail on the back, you know, sort of swishing it around. So I wanted to, those moments, you know, to bring that into your living room. And that's what we did. I don't any other, you know, not be cool, just present it in a kind of thingy way. You knew you'd always get at least one black artist on every week. You know, there was always something there. And I mean, I suppose like if you were in Dublin or whatever, you wouldn't be seeing all the hip hop and the, you know, until it had already become very mainstream. So yeah. with watching the word, you see stuff that maybe would never get quite get there, you know, yeah. like Cypress Hill or whatever, you know, was was kind of on the up and up or was interesting, you know, and you go, yeah. yeah. Terry, how important was it that the bands played live? Did I ever ask, could the lip sync and would it have been tolerated? Well, no, because the whole the whole idea of our show was to be live. You know, it, you know, obviously we'd have, we'd have the odd pre-recorded items, you know, an interview with you know Tom Hanks or whatever or Arnold Schwarzenegger. But you know, most of it was live. It was to bring that bring that feeling that at any moment it could all fall apart. You know, because that's what makes it exciting. You know, you, you'd watch every week thinking what's going to go wrong. Now things wouldn't go wrong every week. But most, most of the time, and certainly in the first three series, it was always spontaneous. It wasn't contrived to gimmick it. I think, I think what, what destroyed the show for me, and I started to not like it, was when they started trying to contrive and get, you know, when, when Tarquin and Tristram got together and tried to contrive the things that happened naturally. Yeah. 
Teddy, can I ask you, the Oliver Reed moment, was that one of those moments? No, I mean, that that to me was a bit contrived, yeah. Because, I mean, look, we had Oliver Reed and Bill Hicks. Yeah. Two great guests. Yeah. So why do you need to, to, you know, do some sort of student prank that isn't funny? You know, it was one of those, you know... When you get them, don't you, you know? Oh, you don't have to be mad to work here, but it helps. <laughs> well, so those types, you know. Yeah. So you, you kind of, you sort of satellite town posh kids, really. You know their idea of being outrageous. And, you so know, I remember watching that thirty. I remember this. watching the Oliver Reed interview at the time. Thought it was brilliant. I watched it re- just this evening before we come on, and it's a hard watch. Yeah, that, you know, you feel- you're wasting a guy who's got a lot to say. Yeah, would have liked, would have, would have rather had a pint in the bar than be stuck in a dressing room with a bottle of vodka. And yeah. then you have Bill Hicks there. If you're going to stick him in a bar, you should have put him and Bill Hicks in the bar together and filmed that. Yeah. Although he was very jet lagged, Bill Hicks. <laughs> and and I always look now and think, who's that sort of Russian model? Who yeah, was that? I couldn't figure I've out. Got no we, idea. we were just I we were know. just talking about this before we came on because she I'm looked totally lost or uncomfortable. Hey. She looked lost or uncomfortable. I didn't know what they make of her. I don't, I don't even know who she is, what she was on for. I can't even find any record of her name. You know, very attractive, but, you know, you're thinking, hmm. <laughs> what was she on for? Terry, we're, we're sitting here almost 30 years and still talking about the word, right? And its impact is going to be felt for years to come. But I have to ask you, even now when I think back to the word, there's only one, it turns my stomach, but the hopefuls. Who's oh, idea? It, no. You hated it? Well, that was Paul Ross's idea. Well, we'd do the odd thing, right, every now and then. Like, I remember on the first show, we had, uh, like, this almost theatre act, Ratman and Robin, on top of a Blackpool tram. And uh, and he goes, oh, they're not cockles and winkles. They're, they're uh, centipedes and blah, 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 cockroaches. And he starts eating them out of a thing. Now, if you're doing it once every 10 weeks or so, or, you know, maybe three times in a series, I don't mind. But once you start doing it every week, it it detracted from us because it meant that we couldn't get big name acts to come on. A lot of bands wouldn't come on. A lot of... Uh, because of that? Big, well, because the thing, well, if I go on that show, all anyone's going to be talking about the next day <laughs> yeah. is some bloke from Stoke-on-Trent who had a worm butty. No, nobody's been going to be talking about my band yeah. or my new movie. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So that, that was a problem. But, I mean, the, one of the strange things for me was I've done eight years of radio, and I can tell you now, categorically, that I would have better music and better guests <laughs> on a Tuesday night on Key 103 than 40 Tarquins and Sebastians could <laughs> gather together for a Friday on The Word. They wow. just weren't that... They weren't that on it, you know. It's it's sort of, you know, they, they, you go, well, why is he on? And well, I think it's really important. I remember um the guy we had editing the, the final the final series, uh, Duncan Gray, you know, like just hopeless. He'd never done anything, you know, he'd just been fast-tracked, basically. Yeah. And he yeah. was saying to me, I, he was saying, Well, who would your right? Because I was moaning about the standard of the guests. And he, he said, Well, who would your ideal guest be? I said, I don't care. I said, do three things. Are they well-known? Are they happening now? And have they got something to say? Those are the three things you need. Two of two out of those three will do. But the most important one is they've got something to say. Otherwise, it's a boring interview. I said, who would be your ideal female guest then this week? And he went, um, um, Liz Hurley. I went, but why? Well, you know, I mean, she's in the in the papers, isn't she? Yeah, she's going out with Hugh Grant. And she wears, you know, she was wearing that dress. I said, stuck together with safety pins. I said, Okay, so I get her on. I say, what's it like going out with you, Grant? Oh, it's great. 
That's it. That's it. I said, we're, we're making a show for 15-year-olds. They won't know who Liz Hurley is. Oh, Terry, you don't be so cynical, blah, 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 blah. Two weeks later, she got mugged, didn't she? <laughs> By a load of 15-year-old girls in London, Liz Hurley. And when they got caught, they said, we didn't know who she was. I went, there you go. The mugging, <laughs> that's our audience. And they didn't know who Liz Hurley was. Do you think, Terry, the word, it ended in, in 85, 95. Do you think yeah. it ended at the right time? No. I, I, I think it was... It was all politics because our figures were going up all the time. But what it was, it got to the stage where the guy who came in as a new commission editor wanted to create his own version of the word. Um, so it, he kind of undermined it. And what he did, and this is interesting because he wouldn't dare take it off because it, if he did and he replaced it as he did with whatever it was, the girly show or whatever, he'd have Michael Gray going, we had a show on at 11 o'clock. I was getting like, you know, two and a half to three and a half million viewers every week. Why, why have we replaced that with one that only gets 1.2 million viewers? So what he did instead was he, he allowed us to carry on doing all that crap like the hopefuls. But he, he used to put a thing afterward. If you'd like to complain about this show, blah, 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 blah. I've never seen that done on Channel 4. Mm. So, of course, then everyone complains to the Board of Governors. The Board of Governors then put the pressure on you know, on Michael Gray to get rid of the show. And then this guy has freed up his budget to go and invent his own version of it so he can bathe in the reflected glow of glory because as a commission editor, he can't, he can't bathe in the reflected glow of glory of a, of a show that he never commissioned. I mean, it's interesting that they commissioned, uh, you know, Chris Evans, CFI. Yeah. Uh, Chris Evans used to come down to the word every, every week with his, with his jotter out taking notes. But it's the wrong sort of show for Chris because Chris hates spontaneity. You know, the last time he did anything spontaneous was have a, sh a shit in his nappy. <laughs> so everything's got to be controlled with Chris Evans. He's not got. He's not into music. He's not really into interviewing people. He's one of these who says, right, I'll say this to you, Kieran. You say this back to me. And then I'll say da-da-da, then you say this. And it's got to be like that all the time. Uh, and then because he didn't know about the music, he brought in a guy, you know, God rest his soul, Pete Mitchell, who was from Manchester. And uh, Pete had worked on, you know, on Key 103 after me. He kind of replaced me as the guy doing the Manchester music. And uh, so Pete came down and, you know, and Pete was quite good. But it was really weird when they did, you know, they did the revival of TFI a few years ago. And they tried to find it a place that it didn't have. It was complete. They did TFI the album. Featuring the Happy Mondays. Happy Mondays had split up by the time Tier 5 was on. They did have Black Grape on, though. Happy Mondays, Stone Roses, Stone Roses were never on Tier 5. New Order, New Order were never on Tier 5. Reef, Reef were on the word, not Tier 5. They just but they used that, that, you know, hold your letters. Angels. Yeah, mm -hmm. get your letters. So all this stuff, Boo Radley's Wake Up Boo, on the word. They didn't reissue that record then two years later to get it on Tier 5, did they? So it was that, you know, it was this kind of almost like trying to sequester the 90s. And it, so it was all fake. And there's a lot of that anyway in the, you know, in the, in the industry, a lot of fakeness. Uh, and that, that's, but what was interesting about the word was we did the best of the word in 1999. So 10 half hour shows. And, uh, and there was a rumor that it might come back. And it, you know, it got great ratings. Again, it was on just after Fraser on Channel 4. 
And I'm, all these journalists, even all these years later, are going, um, the worst thing about the word, if it does come back, is it, it will mean that Terry Christian was right back in 1990 when he said, you'll still be talking. He said, you slag the show off, but you'll still be talking about it in 20 years, no, in 10 years' time. And well, here course, we are. It were. And now people, I mean, people still, obviously, if you were a kid at that time, it's part of that. It was, yeah. it was designed to be that. It was designed to bring a night out into your living room. It was designed to, to make you think, okay, you might not like it for six weeks and you see something great. I mean, badly drawn boy, you know, Damon Goff, yes. he decided to be in a band because, I mean, sadly his brother died, but him and his older brother used to watch it together, you know, and he's in the bedroom on a Friday, you know, because he didn't want their mum and dad knowing what they were doing. And that made him want to be, be in a band. He saw the John Spencer Blues explosion. So we put a band like that on. They were never going to have a hit. They were never going to be put. I mean, it was just a great thing to, you know, put something on with a bit of an edge. Yeah. And you go, wow, what's this? John Spencer Blues explosion. And that made him want to be a musician, you know, and be in a band. And, well, not be in a band, but you know what I mean? Write yeah. songs and yeah. do his own thing. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Ted! Sure, if he was going to get booed or cheers, Terry. What we have to ask you, Rick, in 2009, you went into the celebrity Big Brother house, coming second to the winner, Eureka Johnson. What makes Terry Christian go into the Big Brother house? Well, I mean, to be honest with you, it was a load of money at the time. I mean, I didn't really need it either, <laughs> but it was my my ex missus was pushing me there, going, Get out, get on there. You know, I, there was no dirt on me, was there? You know what I mean? <laughs> so it wasn't like I was going to go in and loads of stuff coming out of the woodwork. And um, I actually enjoyed it. I felt that's the most relaxed I've, I've felt in years. You know, <laughs> no TV, no one moaning at you. And then obviously coming from a big family, to be able to watch more going into Meltdown was fantastic. It was really good fun. A lot of boringness, a lot of, you know, getting starved to death a bit, but. Yeah, the Big Brother house. Bloody yeah. hell. I think that's hey, coming back it, as well, isn't it? That's another one. That yeah, did. yeah, but were, I think mine was the last, the, the one I was on was the last time there were actually celebrities on it. Yeah. It was Muchy Buena, Sugar Babes. They've just got back together again. Did a yeah. great show, apparently, uh, at the, uh, is it the garage in Islington uh, the other night? Um, so, yeah, Muchy Buena, um, Latoya Jackson, Vern Troyer, Coolio. Two of them dead. Out of A1, uh, Ulrika Johnson, um, Tina Malone, out of Shameless at the time. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was all people you'd heard of. Yeah. You know, so it was like, yeah. I mean, Latoya Jackson. Wow. <laughs> what, was she like, like, what was she like uh, in the house? Did you get to oh, talk she to was her? Weird, but she, was, she was all right. She was sound. Yeah. You know, Latoya. And, uh, you know, quite very aware. I, I, can't, I can't say, you know, like she, she, was, she was no one's fool. You know, okay. she was smart and she wasn't like, she wasn't bonkers. She just didn't eat, you know, you know, she, she must have moved, have to move around in the shower to get wet. Not even a bowl of cuddle, Terry, no? No, certainly not a bowl of cuddle. Listen, we all hated cuddling our family, except for our Tony. Uh, but we, you know, because they lived in Old Trafford, only about a 10 minute walk away from United's ground. That's where the yeah. council house was. Yeah. So both me and our Tony used to park our cars outside my mum's, you know, on a Saturday to go to the match. 
And I remember going in there, and I'd pop in, say hello, have a cup of, cup of coffee or whatever, and he was in there dipping white bread into a bowl of coddle. <laughs> you know? <laughs> he still likes it, you know. Well, Terry, you're a natural raconteur. Um, <laughs> you're, you're, you're touring at the moment, your show. What made you decide to do stand-up? And tell us a bit about the show. Well, I did, I did a stand-up show years ago called uh, Naked Confessions of a Recovering Catholic. So it was basically about, you know, about you, you, you're told everything's wrong, so you end up with no borders at all. I mean, all the all the biggest gangsters and most evil gits I know are all Catholic, you know what I mean? I grew up with them. Catholic guilt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, because when you, if you're going to feel guilty, it's like you might as well be hung for a sheep <laughs> as a lamb. So it comes to that. And then I, I used to do a slide show presentation about the saints that always went down well, you know. Say who's this, you know, and do do about the the child of Prague, as they call him over there, <laughs> the infant of Prague. Yeah. You know, sticking it in your backyard to stop it raining. That's right. You know, hey, works, doesn't it? Apparently, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's worked twice when I've witnessed it. So you tell all these stories, you go through it, and then, uh, <laughs> and that was a clever. That was that was good. That worked well. And I thought, well, I'll do one on the word, and then bring that one back. So the word is one with clips. So, I mean, just like a show, uh, so it starts with bits of the show. We do, you know, so we show the Oliver Reed, we show Whitney Houston taking a mickey out of my accent. I mean, I'd give it all away, won't I, to tell everyone now. Yeah. You know, you'd have to come, because yeah. I'm doing one with a giant cinema screen soon. I mean, it's gone down yeah. so well. Brilliant. And obviously, because I know the stories, because when I was doing me naked confessions of a recovering Catholic one, because I thought, well, a lot of people turn up, they just want to talk to me about the word. I let them. So I did a Q&A section. So out of that, I thought, oh, actually, this is really good, <laughs> you know, because it reminded me of the mad stuff that went on. Like, there's one bit I show a compilation of Amanda de Cadenet. You know, she was uber posh. I mean, obviously, they take me, you know, one of six kids, you know, mum's a school dinner lady, dad's a labourer, you know, <laughs> working class, and put me with, like, this multi-multi-millionaire's daughter. You know, he won Le Mans twice, didn't he? Alain de Cadenet, you know, a sports car racer, you know, the glamour, the glamorous life, bags of money from French aristocracy, you know, all sorts, chateaus and villas spilling out of the backside. And they put us together. And I'll never forget, we sent Amanda to Prestat in Pontins. <laughs> hey, we'd have seen that as a holiday abroad when I was a kid. Ooh, Wales. We, we used to go. That's what we used to go to. Um... Pueli, Butlins in Wales. Oh, yeah. Well, Pueli, Butlins yeah. is posher than Pontins. Remember, <laughs> my mum used to say Pontins is better. What she meant, Pontins is cheaper. Because <laughs> Butlins, you got the fun fair, didn't you? <laughs> you got the free fun fair at Butlins. Pontins. It had a roller coaster that just went, you know, like one loop. <laughs> yeah. like... Well, Pontins, you just got in the swimming bath for free. That was it. That was enough. But but so we sent it to press that in Pontins for this sole weekend. <laughs> so obviously she was going, well, but where am I going to be staying? And then someone said, a chalet. <laughs> you know, a chalet. So you can imagine. You know, <laughs> she's expecting it to be on three levels, sauna in the basement, full staff. <laughs> Whereas, you know, having, you know, having been to Pontins myself, I knew it would look more like what Charles Bronson was tunneling out of in The Great Escape. So it's that kind of stuff, you know. So we've been mm. talking about, you know, the posh kit, that juxtapositioning of the posh and the poor. Loads of stories about the Happy Mondays. Fair bit about the 1990s, what was dangerous about it, what was a bit different about it, you know. Brilliant. You've got a you, you've got a gig in Dublin? 
Yeah, yeah. So the Sugar Club in uh, Dublin on the 17th of February. So short notice, really. But yeah, yeah but if, if you want to see Terry live, get your well, tickets. I think, I think they've already done about, you know, 120 tickets. Uh, so, you know, and, and, I, and I, at first I was going, because even my cousin John, I said, oh, you're coming, coming to that. He said, well, Terry, did you, did you not get me on the guest list for Paul Heaton that night? <laughs> you nearly over again. <laughs> <laughs> Paul Heaton. You know, but that's the trouble. Yeah, he's digging into my crowd. Like a word <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Terry, I read somewhere that you consider yourself to be uh, ethnically Irish, but of British nationality. So for the last question, I'm going to ask you, you're sitting in the Thomas House in the centre of Thomas Street. You have a euro in your pocket. There's a jukebox in the corner. What's the last song Terry Christian ever wants to hear? Oh, my God, I can't, I can't even do my top ten. The last <laughs> song I ever want to hear. It's the last orders at the bar. Well, the last song that that uh, the guy Wings Levy from the uh, the Derby's Culture Posse played on my Radio Derby show for me, and I think that is fantastic. Uh, the Mighty Diamonds, Never Get Weary. Well, you know, well, Terry, keep going. <laughs> Mark, the editor, myself, and all the electricity take a team. Terry Christian, <laughs> you've been a saint and a scholar and made uh, this last hour really, really easy for oh, me. Brilliant, brilliant. Hey, Natural I must have said the, uh, nationality British before Brexit. <laughs> yeah. now, I'm, now I'm Irish, mate. 100%. <laughs> Never get jumpy, never get weary.